Hi, I'm Wendy Dean, and this is Moral Matters. This week, we're going to drop a slightly different episode in recognition of a significant milestone in the pandemic that's highlighted so many challenges in our healthcare systems. Two years ago this week, on March 7th, 2020, the index case of COVID-19 was identified in New York City. Less than two weeks before, I sat in a small room in New York's City Hall. There were rows of folding chairs, packed tightly together. Those of us who were participating sat shoulder to shoulder without masks. I was testifying before the hospital committee of the New York City Council about safety in the city's emergency rooms and what hospitals could do to address already high levels of clinician distress. Let me say that again. I was testifying about safety in New York City emergency rooms and what hospitals could do to address already high levels of clinician distress before the pandemic. Members of the public, including patients and other experts, testify last in those hearings. I sat through a long docket of executives from both the public and private hospitals in the city while they explained how joyous staff, supported by their coworkers, would provide the best care, how tea delivered from carts pushed by saffron-sashed volunteers was the solution to clinician distress. I heard a lot about workflows, throughput, access, utilization, and preventable visits as ways to address safety and clinician distress. I heard about millions of dollars in construction projects, public and private, across the city, about new technology that could save minutes during evaluations, and about pizza and donut deliveries once a month. But I heard nothing about what the executives were doing to help frontline clinicians do their jobs better or easier based on feedback from those clinicians. Then I watched the executives collect their coats, their briefcases, and their assistants and walk out of the hearing room after they'd said their piece. They didn't stay to hear from patients. They didn't stay to hear from other experts. And I was told later that that had been a pattern for years. I wonder if, in retrospect, any of them wished that they had stayed to listen. My testimony was the following. The Moral Injury of Healthcare would like to thank the chair and members of the New York City Hospital Oversight Committee for the opportunity to submit this testimony on safety in New York City emergency rooms. As a psychiatrist and an expert on moral injury, I recommend that New York City assess and address conditions that create barriers to good care and which, then, create safety risks for both patients and emergency room staff. Since co-authoring an article on physician distress in July 2018, I have heard from hundreds of physicians and clinicians across the spectrum of care that it is increasingly difficult to deliver good care where they work. Many of them have been emergency room clinicians. The main theme we've heard from clinicians around the country is that ER staff are doing too much with too little for too long. This situation is not unique to New York City, but that does not excuse inaction. When clinicians are consistently unable to meet their patients' needs because of barriers inherent in the framework of care, they are at risk for moral injury, which is perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. 
The concept of moral injury was applied to healthcare in July 2018 and has resonated profoundly with a broad spectrum of clinicians. Moral injury, unrecognized and unattended, is a primary contributor to the 42% of physicians reporting symptoms of burnout. That level of distress has far-reaching implications for healthcare. It erodes teamwork, may reduce patient safety by increasing errors, and contributes to the unacceptably high rate of physician suicide. Moreover, clinicians at institutions with higher levels of distress are more likely to leave their jobs, costing the employer or healthcare system millions each year. Therefore, addressing moral injury, facilitating the ability of clinicians to get patients the care they need, can improve safety, reduce risk, and reduce cost. It is also the right thing for a compassionate healthcare system to do. The culture of medicine is one of stoic self-reliance, driven by a deep commitment to the mission of caring for patients. But that deep commitment to the mission makes clinicians ripe for exploitation and loath to stand up in protest, because who will care for my patients? As Danielle Offrey eloquently described in a New York Times editorial piece, the goodwill of clinicians is wondrously elastic and ruthlessly exploited. On the one hand, clinicians struggle to balance the needs of their employer for volume, speed, door-to-doctor time, community goodwill, and balanced financials. On the other hand, they are trying to meet the tenets of the oath each of them took and trained under to put patients' needs as a priority for a thorough, thoughtful history, physical exam, and appropriate testing for a focused clinician, and for an encounter in which they do not have to wonder what the motives are for the recommended labs, imaging, or medications. As business metrics get pushed further and further into clinical settings, as clinicians are expected to fill gaps in the bottom line with more patients, more testing, or fewer staff, the relational contract of trust and transparency between clinician and patient devolves to the principle of caveat emptor. And when the healing relationship shifts from trust and transparency to opposition and suspicion, psychological safety, not just physical safety, is lost. Business imperatives for a positive balance sheet, whether at for-profit or non-profit institutions, are imposing financial pressure that many doctors believe is hurting care. In many areas, and increasingly in the emergency room, staff is asked to maintain a high volume of patients with insufficient staffing. Inpatient beds are full, so patients are awaiting admission on emergency room stretchers for many hours and sometimes for days. Emergency staff must provide care to those patients, pulling attention from those who present for acute problems. In some emergency departments, doctors are expected to start diagnostic testing for patients after a cursory discussion in the triage area. None of this is good medicine. Hospital publicity also exerts tremendous pressure to treat patients quickly and to keep them happy. Quote, the average patient influences more than $1.5 million in lifetime hospital expenditures for his or her household, unquote. And the impact of social media on the perception of a hospital can be devastating. This also dovetails with Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, linkage of reimbursements to hospital consumer assessment of healthcare providers and system scores. Medicine for marketing is not good medicine either. Many pressures distort the real priority of medicine, which is taking optimal care of patients. 
Staff must attend to the financial, marketing, regulatory, safety, quality, and risk management goals of the healthcare system when their first priority should be to the patient's needs. Tracking emergency care with lean processes and infinite metrics can easily distort the bigger picture of medicine. It distracts from medical care that is good for patients and sustainable for clinicians. A system of care that allows staff the time, the focus, and the processing time to attend to their patients and themselves. This is not a necessarily nefarious construct. Those who push down the expectations for care as it is now, in all likelihood did not aim to create a system that harms both its staff and its patients. They probably thought they understood the impact their decisions would have, even though most are not clinicians. They likely thought it made perfect sense to apply theories learned in business school to a process that looks like an assembly line when viewed from afar by those uninitiated to its diversity and complexity. But the business framework is perpetuated by a culture that has not demonstrated deep curiosity and concern for the well-being of employees. The system as constructed relies on stoicism and the seemingly infinite capacity for goodwill displayed by most clinicians. But the increasingly complex web of clinicians' highly conflicted allegiances to patients, to self, and to the employers, and its attendant moral injury may be driving the healthcare ecosystem to a tipping point and causing the collapse of resilience. By focusing on aspects of care that are not patient as priority, we are losing patient safety and the foundation of a moral system of care. It is critical that we come together, clinicians, administrators, and the patients we all serve, to enact change. We need to realign the incentives of all stakeholders, hospitals, insurers, regulators, legislators, clinicians, patients, and families in the same direction to what is best for the patient. What would be best for patients right now in New York City emergency rooms is optimizing their safety through adequate staffing, sufficient inpatient beds to minimize boarding, and physicians and nurses who have sufficient time, focus, institutional support, and a business framework aligned to provide the thoughtful, thorough assessment, diagnostic evaluation, and acute treatment patients deserve during a health crisis. Our recommendations would be to undergo a thorough assessment of what clinicians believe is leading to unsafe conditions in emergency rooms, to fully understand the administrative incentives driving current practices, including financial drivers, regulations, legislation, and other impacts. Develop collaborative oversight of emergency room conditions responsible for establishing safe limits on metrics, best staffing practices, consideration of marketing limitations based on throughput or wait times, practices to minimize boarding, and a mechanism by which clinicians can express concerns without risk of retaliation. Moral Injury of Healthcare applauds the New York Hospital Oversight Committee for having the courage to confront complex challenges facing all of healthcare. Your leadership may forge a path for others to follow. Thank you for the opportunity to submit this testimony. After the initial shock of the pandemic, extracting my oldest son from university in New York City on March 16th, watching hospitals in the city become overwhelmed, and others elsewhere idle everything non-essential, watching friends scramble for PPE and fight their hospitals for the right to wear it, I was hopeful for the changes the pandemic might spark. We saw hospitals pivot on a dime, 
standing up telemedicine and field hospitals when they were necessary. We saw what could happen when we swept away operational activities that add no value to patient care. Clinician resources were freed up to care for their patients. We saw how co-produced solutions led to immediate improvements. But now, two years later, I'm a bit less hopeful. I'm still seeing institutions across the country give out pizza and cookies without making other changes. Most aren't asking what clinicians need and getting it for them. Understanding how metrics and incentives may have unintended impacts. Engaging in co-produced solutions, administrators with clinicians and with patients. We know these solutions aren't easy and that many hospitals are trying their best without clear direction about what will work. They're inundated with turnkey solutions promising improvements, tranquility tents, respite rooms, coaching, terrarium building, all sorts of things. And they're clutching at straws to help their beleaguered workforce. But we're also hearing a troubling narrative across the country that we just need to get back to business as usual, what we were doing before the pandemic, and all of these challenges will go away. Which is why we decided to record this podcast now. Business as usual, before the pandemic, was also driving a crisis of distress. The pandemic didn't create the crisis, it magnified it. So the end of the pandemic by no means is the end of distress in the healthcare workforce, unless we take action now towards something different. Maybe it's time to try a new approach. Asking new experts, asking the workforce, then listening deeply with curiosity and an open mind. We also know that we cannot do this alone. So let's look to each other for inspiration, motivation, and accountability. We can start by asking, what are we, clinicians, administrators, and patients, promising each other? Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation, and you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening, and stay well.